Thanks so much for joining for another episode of Run the List, a medical education podcast designed by Dr. Naveen Kumar, an attending gastroenterologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Emily Gutowski, a Harvard medical student planning to go into internal medicine, and Dr. Walker Red, myself, a internal medicine resident here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Hi, I'm Walker Red. I'm so excited to be here today with Emily Lau, who's one of our current chief residents at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Just to give you a little bit of background on Emily, she grew up in Southern California. She went to Brown University for medical school, then came here to Brigham and Women's Hospital for her internal medicine training before going on to Mass General Hospital to train for three years at cardiology fellowship before returning back to Brigham for a chief medical residency year this year. She's not only an excellent clinician educator, she's also a clinical researcher focusing on cardiac disease in women and specifically heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. She's also been involved with women in medicine initiatives as well, and we are so glad to have her on today for a broad but incredibly important topic in internal medicine, which is heart failure. This is a big topic with lots of different areas to discuss, but today we're really going to focus on acute decompensated heart failure or a new presentation of heart failure. Without any further ado, let's go ahead and run the list. Introducing our case today, we have a 74-year-old woman with a history of hypertension who's presenting to the emergency department with a few months of dyspnea on exertion. Her daughter is just concerned with her functional decline, specifically since they had a recent Thanksgiving meal with a lot of salt. She has had worsening shortness of breath, some vague chest pressure. She's on amlodipine 10 milligrams, losartan 100 milligrams, HCTZ 25 milligrams. Her vital signs are as follows, blood pressure 180 over 80, her heart rate 70, her oxygen saturation is 92% on room air, and she's afibrile. The emergency medicine resident tells you, you know, this patient's in a little bit of respiratory distress, but appears stable and comfortable overall. She mentions that there's some moderate elevation of the JVP and that does hear some bilateral crackles at the bases on the palm exam and notes two plus pitting edema bilaterally, but the patient's extremities are warm. The first pass labs they've sent in the ED show an elevated NT pro BNP to 3000 and mild elevation of troponins, which are stable and decreasing now. The EKG was remarkable for normal sinus rhythm, mild left ventricular hypertrophy without any ischemic changes. The chest x-ray showed bilateral increased vascular markings, some mild blunting of the costophrenic angles bilaterally. And looking quickly back through the chart, you see the last echo from five years ago showed mild LVH and an EF of 65%. So, Emily, we're tackling a huge topic today, but really, I I think before we get started here, as we always do on Run the List, we want to know from you, a cardiologist, how you think about heart failure as a general condition. That's a great question, and thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. So when I think about heart failure, I would start by just thinking broadly, well, what does heart failure even mean? I like to break it down simply as the heart is not pumping well enough or relaxing well enough to be able to provide all of the oxygen needs for the body. And it's really as simple as that. And once you have that framework, then there are a number of different ways of classifying heart failure that you'll hear about on the wards. Let's break down a few of them. 
I think the first things to think about is, is this acute heart failure or is this chronic heart failure? Today, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about acute heart failure. So that's a patient just like this one who's coming in with new shortness of breath. Her jugular venous pressure is elevated. She has RALs on exam, suggestive of pulmonary edema. Her BNP is elevated. Her troponins are mildly elevated. So that's somebody who you're saying is acutely decompensated. They have evidence of intravascular volume elevation. Now, that's in contrast to chronic heart failure, which is somebody who is living with heart failure. And many of these patients are outside of the hospital. They live very normal lives, but we know that there's something intrinsically wrong with their heart, whether it's that they aren't able to pump well, or maybe their heart can't relax as well, or both. Another framework that you'll hear tossed around a lot on the wards is this concept of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction versus heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So in cardiology and in medicine, we use the echocardiogram a lot to help us determine the prognosis of a patient and how best to manage them. And one of the measurements that we get on an echocardiogram is called the LV ejection fraction. And basically it measures how much your heart is able to squeeze each time it beats. And a normal ejection fraction is between 50 to 65%. So somebody who has heart failure with reduced ejection fraction has an LV ejection fraction that's less than 40%. And then anybody who has a normal ejection fraction, so greater than 50%, is considered heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And then, of course, there are the in-betweens, what's between 40 and 50%. As a community, we still haven't quite figured out what to call them. Sometimes we call them mid-range EF, but that's a a sort of different category. Thanks so much, Emily. It's really helpful. Uh, Another thing that always comes up on the wards when we're talking about heart failure patients is warm, dry, warm, wet, all these different profiles. How would you summarize how you think about the so-called hemodynamic profiles in heart failure? Perfect. So uh, when we have a patient who is in an acute decompensated heart failure state or commonly called a heart failure exacerbation, we want to be thinking about two main issues. One, how congested are they? And two, what is their perfusion status? And essentially, if you put congestion and perfusion on the X and Y axis, you create a two by two table. And so there are four hemodynamic profiles. One is that they are warm, meaning they are well perfused, and they are dry, meaning they are not congested. The second profile is you're warm and wet, so you're perfusing, but you're actually quite congested. And then you could also be cold and wet, meaning you're not perfusing well, and you have a lot of extra congestion. And finally, cold and dry, where you're not perfusing well, but you don't actually have a lot of congestion on exam. And this is a really important framework in helping us determine what therapies to give our patients. Excellent. So thinking about this patient who probably fits into that warm and wet category, or any other patient you're seeing with heart failure being admitted, how are you triaging this in your head when you have a new patient you're going to see? I actually use these hemodynamic profiles to help me determine where these patients need to go and how sick they are. So the first question I always ask is, does this patient need to be in an intensive care unit setting? The decision really predicates on whether or not they are perfusing well. So for instance, is this a person who's very warm? They're talking to you. They're actually maintaining a good blood pressure. That's somebody who probably can be managed on a regular floor. 
Now, if the patient is very cold, they are a bit sleepy, they're not urinating, you're worried that their heart function is so compromised that they're not actually able to perfuse their vital organs. And that's a person that probably needs a higher level of care and may end up needing medicines like pressors to maintain their blood pressure or inotropes to actually increase contractility. And even in some special cases, we put in something called a pulmonary artery catheter, which actually helps us measure the pressures directly inside of the heart so that we can really tailor the therapy to the specific patient. Great. And so regardless of whether they're going to the ICU or coming to the floor, these are patients, especially when they first get admitted, we're going to watch really closely and monitor closely. So for our patient, the team goes down to the ED, sees the patient. She is not in any acute distress. She's stable. She's mentating. So we go ahead and write her for some Lasix to start diuresis. We give her a few liters of oxygen by nasal cannula. And we start thinking about our differential for dyspnea on exertion. You don't want to ever anchor. So we go through the other things on our differential diagnoses. We think those are less likely. Then we're starting to think about for this patient who we think has a heart failure exacerbation, what is it really that caused the timing of this patient to present now? What are some different causes that you see frequently as a cardiologist when these patients present? Whenever I have a patient who's presenting with an acute heart failure exacerbation, I'm always thinking about, well, what was the trigger? What actually led them to suddenly become short of breath, start to develop fluid uh, buildup? Um, and I think the most common thing you will see on the medicine floor is that perhaps the patient did not take their medications or perhaps were eating more salt or taking in more fluid. It's very, very difficult to actually maintain a two gram sodium diet and a two liter fluid restriction. These are really challenging for all patients. Now, there are some things that are cannot misses. So ischemia or coronary artery disease is an important possible trigger that you should always think about and rule out. Uncontrolled hypertension, Arrhythmias are also especially common, particularly atrial fibrillation. That's extremely common in our heart failure population. And then other things like renal dysfunction or thyroid disease. Also, new valve disease is an important consideration. And then finally, I would say any toxins, so alcohol, cocaine, or actually any other medicines. And then finally, in about 50% of cases, we can never really figure out what the trigger is, and we call that idiopathic. Excellent. So in a number of these presentations, we may not be able to get to a diagnosis. We may end up calling it idiopathic. But in the meantime, we want to make sure we're thoroughly looking at their meds, getting a good social history, getting all of the ischemic workup just to make sure that's negative as well before deciding to manage this patient for their volume overload. We've already sort of talked about the hemodynamic profiles, Emily. So assuming this patient does not need the ICU, what are things on exam, labs, imaging, or kind of other workup that you think about for all these patients when they present? I always start first with a physical exam. The first thing I do when I walk into a room is to look at the patient. Are they in distress or are they actually sitting quite comfortably? Are they bolt upright because they can't breathe when they're lying flat? So these are already important clues that you can get just from the doorway. And then the next thing I do always is I put my hands on the patient. And I often will put my hands on their upper legs to feel if they are cold or warm, because that's an important determination in terms of what their perfusion status is. And from there, I will examine their jugular venous pressure. I'll listen to their cardiac exam to listen for any new valvular abnormalities that weren't previously present, listen to their lungs for any rals, and then, of course, look for any signs of peripheral edema or abdominal ascites. And then once you've sort of gotten a sense of what they look like on exam, you can send some corroborative labs. Uh, basic metabolic panel and CBC are always helpful. 
And troponin can be useful, particularly if you suspect ischemia. Liver enzymes, lactate, and kidney function are all important measures of end organ perfusion. So that can help you determine whether or not the patient is adequately perfusing. And then finally, an NT pro BNP, which is a special cardiac biomarker that actually measures the amount of stretch in the cardiac atria can be a very helpful sign as to whether or not somebody is truly volume overloaded. Finally, once I've gotten the exam in the labs, there are a number of imaging studies that I'll think about. Certainly an EKG is always helpful, again, for looking for any arrhythmias or for any evidence of ischemia. Chest x-ray will tell you whether or not they have significant pulmonary edema. You can also look at the size of the heart on chest x-ray. And then, of course, for every cardiologist, we're always interested in the transthoracic echocardiogram. And the echo can give you a lot of information. We already talked about the LV ejection fraction, which is very helpful, but you can also look to see if there's any regional wall motion abnormality. So is there evidence of ischemia and is there part of the heart that's not getting enough blood flow? And then, of course, you can look for things like valvular dysfunction. Is there valvular regurgitation or stenosis? Is that contributing? Excellent. So, Emily, I, I just want to emphasize one, one point you made. When, when you said corroborative labs, I think that's so important. I think we can look at the labs, we can look at the echo, all that data will come back over time managing this patient. But the physical exam, as you emphasize, particularly, I feel like I've gained a huge appreciation during residency for feeling whether that patient is warm proximally in their extremities, because that is ultimately, regardless of what the labs are telling you, that and the urine output and the mental status, the exam is vital. And it's so easy for us, especially as we're busy with other tasks, to not be at the bedside as much as we sometimes should be. So that's been a huge learning point that many of the cardiologists here have helped me work on because we really can tell so much about where that patient is in the hemodynamic profiles from the physical exam itself. And that's exactly right. A heart failure is a clinical diagnosis. It's not a lab diagnosis or an imaging diagnosis. It really does come down to the history and the physical things that you learn in your first year of medical school. Just to come back to our case briefly, our 74-year-old woman with dyspnea on exertion, her echo showed a 65% ejection fraction with some diastolic dysfunction. This basically gives the team the knowledge that this is less likely coronary artery disease or major valvular abnormalities and is more likely something along the lines of idiopathic or dietary indiscretion over the holidays or perhaps not taking her blood pressure medications and being hypertensive. Now that we've ruled out some of the diagnoses that we would need to act more quickly on, how are we thinking about medical management for this patient? I think of treatment entirely about the cardiac output. In patients with heart failure, we're really trying to maintain adequate cardiac output so that we can ultimately be able to deliver oxygen to all of our important organs. And remember, cardiac output is equal to our heart rate times our stroke volume. And the components that make up your stroke volume are preload, afterload, and contractility. So all of our treatments actually are based on those three elements. So I break down my treatments into preload, which is, for instance, diuresis, afterload, medications to help decrease your blood pressure, and contractility, medicines that actually increase the force of contraction of your heart. And finally, there's a whole nother class of medications that belong to this group called neurohormonal blockade, which we'll talk a lot more about in a future episode. Today, we'll spend most of our time talking about diuresis. Specifically, when I think about diuresis, many of our patients are actually on some sort of diuretic as an outpatient. They might be taking Lasix or Torsamide. All of these diuretics generally come in oral forms and in IV forms. When somebody is in an acute decompensated state, an oral medication is really generally not enough. And part of the reason that's the case is that 
when you have extra fluid in your body, you have it everywhere, including your gut. And so if you take a medicine by mouth, often that medicine will not be well absorbed because there's so much edema in your gut. And so the first choice of diuretic is typically an IV medicine. Great. So that's really the, the key to managing these patients is diuresing. And so with that, I just want to highlight a time where you as the student or the trainee can really step in and be helpful to the team. And that is that diuresis is something that takes a lot of attention and active management. So doing things like tracking the patient's intake and output, tracking the patient's standing weights each day, making sure that you closely watch the electrolytes, usually twice a day, and make sure you replete the magnesium and potassium specifically, are all important aspects of management. That summarizes the main way we think about heart failure as a condition and the way we manage these patients on the floor. Another huge learning point for me during my training has been gaining an appreciation for how valuable having a cardiologist input as a specialist or expert like Emily is to these patients' care. So Emily, tell me a little bit about how you think about the need for cardiologist expertise in both the inpatient and outpatient setting. Well, I'll say that cardiologists are all really excited about heart failure, so we're always excited to be involved. <laughs> um, I would say that every patient with heart failure, whether that's heart failure with reduced ejection, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, should all have a cardiologist as an outpatient. For patients who are inpatient, many of our heart failure patients, especially the warm and wet category of patients, will often be admitted to our general medicine services. And internists can do a very good job taking care of these patients. The times that I think about having to involve an inpatient cardiology consult team are when, one, the patient is not perfusing. So this is an example of the dry and wet or the dry and cold patient. So you're thinking about having to escalate therapy beyond diuretics. And the second is if, for instance, you're concerned about something like coronary disease and you want to try to investigate that further with a cardiac catheterization. So really, if there's a time where you think that you need to escalate care beyond the basic medicines like Lasix that we typically use on the floor, that would be a good time to bring in a cardiologist. Great advice. So returning to our case, we diuresis this patient with Lasix. Her weight came down to what we call an estimated dry weight. Her edema resolved. She felt much better. She was saturating normally on room air. And we added a diuretic, Lasix 40 milligrams by mouth, to her daily home regimen. And then set her up with both a cardiologist as an outpatient and cardiac rehab. As we conclude, we've talked about so much today. This is a notoriously complicated condition that's also extremely common. So if you had to boil down to just those few key clinical pearls for students and trainees to take away from this episode, how would you summarize? I would say the first thing is that heart failure still remains in 2019 a clinical diagnosis and that history and physical are exceedingly important for the diagnosis. And then second, that the hemodynamic profiles that you actually ascertain on physical exam and on history will really help you determine where you're going to be triaging these patients and what therapies you'll be giving them. And then finally, it's extremely important to rule out things like coronary disease and valvular disease as triggers for acute heart failure exacerbations because there's something that we can do about it. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Emily. We are so appreciative as a team at Run the List to have you on and appreciate you sharing your expertise with our learners. Thank you all so much, listeners, for joining for another episode of Run the List, and we hope you'll join us again. We really appreciate any and all feedback you can give us via email, Twitter, by our website, and we're working on improving the sound quality, and we're also working on trying to provide some visual aids, and we really appreciate your continued support and feedback. Thanks so much for tuning in. 